This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. And we're here. Hi. Again. We back. <laughs> oh my God, we're back again. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that's one thing. I c- no, I'm not a boy band. Ah, oh, shut up. I, dude, my heart belongs to New Kids on the Block. They're a boy band. Th- I know. I, ca- I couldn't do any of the other ones. I was, it was just out of my system by then. Oh, I had I was boy banded it to death. Fully engulfed in the Backstreet Boys in sync drama. Yes. I bet you were. I was. That doesn't surprise me. I was the girl who pretended like I didn't like them, but loved them. <laughs> yeah, Miss Emo Queen. <laughs> I would listen to Backstreet Boys and then feel guilty about it. And then I would listen to corn. <laughs> That'll fix it. That fixes That cancels out, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Especially because it's corn. Yeah. You chose wisely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, friends. We're fidgeting with our hump day treats because we really want another. I want another. more. I want more. <laughs> Please, sir, can I have another? <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, yeah. It's hump day. Uh, it's hump day. Thank God. And our hump day treat this week is brought to you by Brittany's trip to Target. (laughs) I love Brittany's (laughs) trip to Target. So this was an accidental hump day treat. Mm -hmm. I was grocery shopping and on the end cap of one of the aisles was a box of margarita popsicles. And so, of course, I was intrigued. All the cool shit is at the end of the aisle. (sighs) Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. how they get you. So there's three different flavors. There's strawberry and mango, and the other one's just like regular margarita, huh? Mm-hmm. It's like a lime. So I got the strawberry. Amanda's got the mango, and they're delicious. Oh, my God. It's made with, what is this, 100% de agave wine, mm-hmm. which was slightly misleading because it says right. margarita. <laughs> I was reading the alcohol content, and I was like, hold on. This is wine, but but they say margaritas, but I don't care. It's so good. It is really, really good. And they're big. They're big. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) And there's 6% alcohol in each popsicle. Yeah. And they're only 100 calories. Yeah. They're made by. This is a winner. Like you. Made by Rancho La Gloria. Ready to freeze. Here we go. It's, It's good shit. It is really good shit. So if you hear this. Crumpling of wrapper, we're just popsicling, it's fine. <laughs> popsicling. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing. So, oh my goodness, did we have some <laughs> swallowing issues over there? I guess I took it out of my mouth too quickly. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> and the end of the wrapper, like, popped and it slung stuff. Just way. stop talking. <laughs> It just got worse the more words you used. (laughs) There was no saving that. I thought it got on you, but apparently not. Thank goodness for that. I could have just kept my mouth shut. Nobody would have known, but no. At least it didn't land in my hair. (laughs) It's hair gel. It's hair gel. Stop it. (laughs) 
Okay, back on track, friends. What are we? It's episode 47. Sex, Sex worker, worker crimes. crimes. So the conversation's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, we've got our alcohol on the go for the busy working woman. The busy gal on the go. <laughs> See, it fits. It does. <laughs> It's all things. I just thought of that. Like it just came. It just came together well. <laughs> it tracks. <laughs> oh my god, we haven't even had a whole popsicle. I know. It's just these been, might be good for giggles. Yeah. Apparently, I it's don't know. It's just been a day too. It has been a day, and we still have one more day left this time that we're recording. We're recording yeah. on a Thursday. Again. A Thursday again because people in my life will not stop getting married. Yeah. Y'all need to chill out. <laughs> this better be the last one for like a year. For a little while. Mm-hmm. This time it's my baby brother. My youngest brother is getting married. Yeah, this is a big one. I still haven't come to terms with the fact that he drives. So this is really weird to me. I know. he's a, It's weird. He's like almost kind of. No, I still don't see him as almost a grown up. I still see him as like a high school kid. This but... This child has graduated college. Yeah. And is getting married and has, like, a real grown-up job. And he still feels like my baby brother. So it's really weird for me. But He will always be your baby brother. <sighs> Here we are. Um, before we get started, go to the socials and follow us so you can see pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's fun. Those are fun. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff we do on there is fun, too. Yeah. I like it. It's a hoot. Hi. It makes me <laughs> giggle. <laughs> Uh, oh, and we have an announcement this week. Yes, we do. It's okay. Sit down. Sit sit down for just a second. Take think, a deep breath. I think they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're going on break. We're we're taking another break. Um, we've decided to do them twice a year. Mm-hmm. You know, last December we took one, and that was oh so helpful with all of the holidays and everything. And um, y'all still came back, so thank you. Yeah. And so now that it's coming up on the one-year mark. Yes. We're taking the month of June off to get some stuff going. Mm-hmm. Always. So you'll have you'll have an episode that first week of June. Yes. But then we'll be taking a few weeks off. Mm-hmm. And then the first week of July, we'll have an episode for you. We'll so it's not, not that long. But yeah. For mental health and family, we're going to take two breaks a year. So, December and June will be our breaks. Yeah. So, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Mm-hmm. You're informed. Yep. Continue. With All is well. Activities. <laughs> <laughs> with your humping. Oh, whatever you're doing. Please don't hump while you listen. That's no, just weird. I happy humping. <laughs> <laughs> this content is not made for that activity. Well, this episode is. <laughs> so, okay, let me have some popsicle and then let's get this shit going. Okay. You have some popsicle. <laughs> so dirty. Did I interrupt your swallow? No. Okay, good. I almost spilled it on myself. Yeah, it, co- it comes it came like, out real fast. Yeah, it does. Comes splooshing out. Okay, let me just finish here. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Work it on it. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> Call me when you're through. Take care yeah, of you. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Yeah. Let's do this. My case is on Mr. Richard Cottingham. Mm-hmm. And you may not recognize that name, but you will. But it'll all come rushing back to you. 
Okay, so Richard Cottingham is said to be one of the deadliest serial killers in history. He was nicknamed the Torso Killer and Times Square Ripper after his dismemberment and decapitation of two victims on December 2nd, 1979. These crimes took place in a travel-in hotel on West 42nd Street and 10th Avenue in the vicinity of Times Square. So, oh my God. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. That is your synopsis. Thank you for setting the tone. Here we go, friends. Okay. <laughs> I can't. So, <laughs> Richard was born on November 25th, 1946 in the Bronx, New York. He was one of three children. In 1958, when he was 12, his family moved to Rivervale, New Jersey. Growing up, he had trouble making friends, as we all do, really. Yeah. However, he showed no obvious signs of the evil he was capable of. Richard was said to have an interest in homing pigeons. Okay. (laughs) I couldn't find any more information on that, but I kind of need to know what the interest was. Did he raise them? Did he just watch them? Like, what's the deal with that? What did he do? He would help out around his mother's garden. His loner behavior was not out of the ordinary, though, and he later did make friends in high school. He also became a long-distance runner for the school's cross-country track team. See? He was involved, making friends. And some kids are just shy. So there was nothing really weird about about his childhood. Like, everything was normal. Mm -hmm. On the surface, it was normal. Sure. In 1964, Richard graduated from Pascack Valley High School in Hillsdale, New Jersey. Cack. Pass the cack. <laughs> Pass the cack. <laughs> oh, my God. That just makes me think of the sweetest thing. Oh, my cack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Richard worked for his father at Metropolitan Life. They sold insurance. Okay. From 1964 to 1966 as a computer operator Fun. while taking computer courses. Yeah. In October 1966, he went to work as a computer operator at Blue Cross Blue Shield Association in New York. Okay. He worked there for 16 years, and the company was based on Manhattan's 3rd Avenue. Richard was a valued employee who preferred the 3 to 11 p.m. shift, which is not not That's common. That's odd. Yeah. But it, it worked out for him. I'll tell you more. I'm sure it did. (laughs) By the way, your voice has changed slightly Mm -hmm. in tone. On May 3rd, 1970, he married his wife, Janet, in Queens Village, New York. He seemed to be leading an average everyday life in Lodi, New Jersey, with his wife and three kids. His neighbors all described him as a doting father. But there were signs that Richard Cottingham was living a double life. Okay, I've got to pause for a second. What? Every time I read his full name, Richard Cottingham, I want to say Cunningham. Yeah. Like happy days. Uh, Yeah. This ain't Richie? No. 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 (laughs) It is a Richard, but it's not. (laughs) Yeah. But this Richard was living a double life, and there were signs, so here they are. Okay. He had an apartment in New York City that he told Janet he needed for late nights at work. Okay. No. Mm -hmm. Red flag. Yeah. Richard also had a self-described obsession with bondage and had had numerous affairs. No, Mm. you don't say. Janet had even filed for divorce in 1979, though she changed her mind the next year. Oh, honey. 
But his arrest in 1980 changed everything, exposing Richard's double life and his deadly hobbies. Poor Janet. I know. Okay. Can't catch a break. We're about to get juicy? Is Mm -hmm. that what we're doing? Oh, it's going to get juicy. Okay. It's going to be juicy. (laughs) (laughs) In early December 1979, firefighters were called to the Travel Inn Motor Hotel on 42nd Street as a fire burned in room 417. Oh, Although first responders encountered thick smoke in the room, one noticed the shape of bodies on the twin beds. Oh, the bodies of the women had no heads and no hands. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Richard Cottingham had tortured, raped, and killed Dita Gudarzi. Gudarzi? Yeah. And an unidentified teenager who they still to this day call Jane Doe. Oh, damn. Yeah. He fled the scene with the heads and hands, which were never recovered. So he put them in a bag and took wow. off, and they still have not found them. Ugh, ugh. Investigators noted the crime scene had little evidence, and they were unable to identify the victims at first. He did leave behind their clothing, including a pair of bonjour jeans, oh. white leotards, and a black fur coat neatly folded in the bathtub. Okay. Yeah. Psycho. Stumped clothes. Right? If you're killing somebody, what you gonna pull their clothes for? Why are you cleaning? (laughs) Just run. (laughs) I don't know. With heads and hands and toe, I guess. Stumped, the police used mannequins from nearby stores and dressed them in the victim's clothing in hopes of sparking recognition from family or friends. And a friend of one victim came forward, and that's when she was positively identified through a C-section scar and chest x-ray as 22-year-old sex worker Dita Gudarzi. Oh, damn. Oh. So that's how they found out who she was, is somebody recognized those clothes and said, hey, I think this might be my friend Dita. And so because she had the C-section scar and uh, all that, they were able to tell it was her. Yeah, and their um, job of choice is probably why the other one was never identified. Right, because she was underage. and I couldn't think of the yeah. word profession. 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 Jesus. It's been a long day. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah. So um, the killer had registered at the hotel under a fake name with a fake address, of course. <laughs> Carl Wilson of Merlin, New Jersey. And Carl. hotel employees. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> and hotel employees had hardly interacted with him. They offered a possible description of a man in his 30s, about 5'10 and 175 pounds with brown hair. Huh. But, but that was as much as, as they could get from that case as far as clues and evidence and whatnot. Okay. The predator dubbed the Torso Killer would strike again in May 1980. Richard then also killed Jean Rayner, a 25-year-old mother working as a sex worker to finance a child custody battle at the Seville Hotel in New York. Her throat was slashed, and she was then set on fire. He also cut off her breasts and placed them on the headboard of the bed in the room. Richard was also connected to the murder of Valerie Street in New Jersey. Her body was found by a maid at the Quality M Motel, handcuffed under a bed. His fingerprint was found on the handcuffs. Valerie had just been busted in Miami for sex work and was last seen getting picked up by a man in New York City. 
The case was similar to a previously unsolved murder of nurse Marianne Carr, who was found dead in the same motel three years earlier. Ooh. Damn. He's been busy. Yeah. Bro's busy. But still, no one suspected how big this sexually sadistic serial killer's reach stretched and that it had started more than a decade before. Yay. It would take about five months after the murders at Travel Inn for investigators to arrest their man, a married father of three from Lodi, New Jersey, who targeted sex workers in Times Square. That makes... What a... Ugh. I ugh. know. What a slimeball. Yeah. Hey, you want to see a picture of him real quick? No. Okay, we'll do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> go to the notes and look at the one that says Cottingham mugshot. Uh, the mustache. Yeah, that was him in his 30s. Oh, so I guess they did accurately describe him. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was very vague. But he looks like any average dad in the 80s. Yeah, he does. Like, he... I mean, he's got kind of a... He's very nondescript looking, like... Really? He's other than basic. the mustache, yeah. Other than the mustache, there's really nothing that. But I mean, like he said in the '80s, that was pretty common. So there's really no distinctive. Yeah, everybody had a maybe porn his stash. nose. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's more distinctive looking now, but we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> so he was eventually apprehended on May 22nd, 1980, in a Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, Quality Inn motel. So the same motel. Wow. Mm-hmm. He was in the act of torturing a teenage sex worker, Leslie O'Dell, that he had lured and driven there from New York City. Oh, wow. So she was a 19-year-old runaway who was desperate to escape her pimp. Richard had promised to help her over drinks. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Come here, honey. Let me help you. Uh Get away from this horrible man. So I have a quote from Leslie. Quote, he told me to shut up, that I was a whore, and that I had to be punished. He said the other girls took it, and I had to take it, too. He said that uncountable times, end quote. Sick. I know. At one point, Leslie grabbed Richard's gun and pointed it at him before realizing that it was a fake. Oh, fuck. She screamed and was heard by a maid who then called the police. When he was arrested, he had handcuffs, knives, prescription pills, and other suspicious items on him. Mm. Soon, he was connected to a series of murders in New Jersey and New York that had occurred over the previous few months. Sweet. Since there was lack of surveillance cameras and databases to track crime across jurisdictions, the connection wasn't made any sooner. You know, it wasn't until they caught him and things started coming together when they realized he lived in Jersey and worked in New York and, you know, like... His timing matched up. That's when they were able to tie it all together. I'm just glad they did it. Yeah. Later on, the police also found a room in the basement of Richard's home that served as his trophy room. Oh, hell no. It contained many items that linked him to the murders. Richard kept things like jewelry and trinkets as souvenirs. There was a lockbox that contained Marianne Carr's apartment key and a necklace belonging to Gene Rayner. These objects were presented as evidence by prosecutors at his trial, obviously. Yeah, I'd say he's guilty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a series of trials in New Jersey and New York from 1981 to 1984, Richard was convicted for murdering Dita Guzzari, the Jane Doe, Jean Rayner, Valerie Street, and Marianne Carr, who was killed in 1977. I told you about her earlier, but I don't think I threw the year in there. Okay. So it happened before. Yeah, it did. Those others. Okay. But we're gonna, we're gonna get even further back than that. Just. Holy shit. Hang okay. on tight, kiddos. Yeah. 
There were also multiple charges of kidnapping and sexual assault. In 2010, Cottingham pleaded guilty to the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. He confessed Ooh. under immunity to the murders of New Jersey schoolgirls Jackie Harp, Irene Blasey, or Blass, either way, I don't know. Blasé. Blasé. <laughs> and Denise Falaska in 1968 and 1969. Holy shit. In 2021, he confessed and pleaded guilty in the double abduction, rape, and murders of Lorraine Marie Kelly, 16, and Marianne Pryor, 17. Oh, my God. He was also found guilty of kidnapping and assault, with his sentence going up to more than 200 years. Good. For the murders of Mary and Lorraine, Richard was to receive two life sentences that would run concurrently with the time he's been serving. Oh, yeah. He ain't never getting out. Yeah, he ain't going nowhere. Over the years, he confessed to killing several more women with his earliest known murder in 1967. So I told you about how Richard kidnapped 17-year-old Marianne Pryor and 16-year-old Lorraine Marie Kelly. Yeah. Um, that was in August 1974 in Manhattan, New York. He took the girls to a motel where he tortured and sexually assaulted them for days before drowning them in a bathtub. Oh, my. Richard then dumped the bodies in a wooded area in Bergen County, New Jersey. In September and October 1978, he attacked and raped Karen Schilt and Susan Geiger, who was pregnant. Both were dumped and left for dead in New Jersey. So they just keep adding up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in 2009, uh, he resurfaced again when he gave an interview to a journalist, Nadia Fazani. Yay. And here's a quote from him. Oof. Quote, okay. It was a game to me. It was mainly psychological. I was able to get almost any woman to do whatever I wanted them to do. It's godlike almost. You are in complete control of somebody's destiny. I never thought I would get caught, he added. Yeah. Fuck you, dude. Fuck he you. needs his own personal douchebox. Yeah. He also claimed to have committed 80 perfect murders that no one knows about. Oh, he definitely, definitely has I'm, his own I'm, box. Yeah. I'm sure he's done, he's done more. Mm-hmm. Richard confessed to more murders, including five teenage victims from New Jersey, none of who were sex workers. In 1967, he strangled to death Nancy Vogel, a 29-year-old mother of two, inside her vehicle during a visit to Ridgefield Park, New Jersey. Yeah. So, in total, he has been charged with 11 murders. He claims to have killed upwards of 100, though. He did not have intentions, originally, of completing his sentences. Richard Cottingham's first suicide attempt was while in custody in 1980. Oh, hell no. No, no, sir. Uh Uh-uh. He smashed his glasses and used the glass to slash his wrists. All right. This attempt was unsuccessful. He tried a different method on June 14th, 1981. While locked in his cell, Richard drank six ounces of liquid antidepressant, and he survived. Where'd he get? Never mind. There's no way to know. His third attempt was the most dramatic. While on trial for three more murders on July 6th, 1984, Richard produced a razor blade and slashed his left forearm in front of jurors. Damn. It is unknown how he acquired the blade, but he failed to do much damage with it. The trial resumed later that (laughs) afternoon. They were like, fuck you, dude. Put a Band-Aid on it. We're continuing. (laughs) Stitch it up right here. Don't don't eh. numb it. Don't clean the needle. It's Rub fine. Rub some dirt on it. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad that he failed three times. Mm-hmm. And I hope he suffered. 
as of January 2022, he's still kicking and 75 years old. Oh, good. So would you like to see a picture of him now? Yes. It says Cottingham now. Okay. And all I can say is, bro, bro looks like Santa. Legit looks like he Santa. Legit Claus. looks like Santa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder if he plays like the Christmas Santa oh, in, in the jail house. every year. <laughs> Come sit on my lap. <laughs> Santa's got a tree. Oh my god! That, oh my god! That's terrible. That's terrible. But also, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> also, fucking hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's still got a mustache. He's still got a mustache. (laughs) That didn't change. No, he's still pretty much got the same style going on. He just has a beard. But he remains incarcerated at Southwood State Prison in Bridgeton, New Jersey. Okay. Now, this next paragraph is going to make you go, what in the actual fuck? Okay. So just, again... Hold on to your shit, people. Okay. This is going to, yeah, this is going to make you go, what the fuck? I'm excited. Okay. Remarkably, Richard Cottingham found friendship in Jennifer Weiss, the daughter of Dita Gudarzi, the 22-year-old woman who was killed, dismembered, and set on fire on December 2nd, 1979. No! What the actual fuck? What a twist. How could someone befriend a man who had How? killed and dismembered their mother? I want to know. I want to know. Th- so, there better be an answer or an explanation in here somewhere. I, I, wow. So a little bit, I realized I didn't add this part to the story, but just a little bit about Jennifer herself. Okay. So her mother was a sex worker okay. and was young, got pregnant with her and uh, put her up for adoption. All right. So she was adopted as a baby. She didn't really know her mother. Well, she didn't know her mother at all okay because her mother died while she was still a baby so oh yeah oh so wise told nj.com that quote everybody deserves to be forgiven the magnitude of what he did is unfathomable that is such a word it is a word (laughs) but i became friends with richard for my mother's sake and for my quest end quote the fuck was your quest (laughs) I'll get to it. Okay. As an adopted child, Jennifer's extraordinary goodwill is motivated by a tragic wish to find her mother's skull. What? She remembered the first time she came face to face with Cottingham telling NJ.com that, quote, he was sitting there waiting in the window with a sheet of glass between us. The image of him was a little frightening, but I wasn't scared. I was more concerned about finding out about my mom. That was the driving force, end quote. Okay. So despite visiting Cottingham over 30 times, Jennifer is yet to fulfill her quest. So she wants she wants to know what he did with her head. That is her quest in life, is to find out what the serial killer did with her mother's head. Because they still haven't found the heads and hands of the women from the hotel room. I, I understand that. Um, yeah, it's... I do, but I don't. It's all very bizarre to me. But every person, like, she's got her reasons and whatever... But I could, I don't think I could do that. Boy, that is a fine line between, oh. But they are, they actually have a friendship. She visits him in prison. I have a picture of one of their such visits in prison. Holy shit. So there was a bunch of pictures, but I chose this one because it was funny. Oh my God. Yeah, they are actually (laughs) friends. She's pretending to strangle him in the prison photo. (laughs) With this goofy look, like that kind, I just cannot. I cannot. I couldn't be that close to the man that cut my mom's head off. No. 
Among that, other things. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, n- no. But, yeah, there were multiple okay. pictures. Like, she visits him in prison, and on picture day, she goes and takes family pictures with him. That's so cute. I'm loving this for her. <laughs> I love this quest for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, um... Okay. There's a new docuseries. Shut up. It is the second in Netflix's crime scene anthology. Director Joe Berlinger studies the torso killer's murder spree and the sexually charged crime-ridden culture of 1970s Times Square. Okay. Despite the gruesome nature of his murders, Richard Cottingham never received the press coverage of uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, whose crimes took place only three years before. Okay. So here's a quote from Berlinger. Quote, I have done many shows about serial killers, and I have always marveled at the fact that Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, and Berkowitz were all household names perversely, Berlinger told The Post. Quote, but Cottingham flew under the radar precisely because of how he chose his victims and who his victims were. They were marginalized sex workers in a Times Square that was nearly lawless, and when the police, at best, looked the other way. End quote. Mm. So the series will include interviews with former sex workers, including Barbara Amaya, who was raped and robbed at gunpoint by a man that she believes was Richard Cottingham, although she was spared. Damn. Yeah. Maybe he was practicing. So today we know Times Square as a glittering tourist attraction. Sure. It is filled with restaurants, upscale hotels, and loads of entertainment. Yeah, you can even take the whole family there now. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Dick Clark goes every year. Right? (laughs) I think I've seen him there once or twice. (laughs) But it had a much seedier reputation in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Not only was Times Square filled with porn shops, peep shows, and sex workers, but it also became the perfect setting for crimes, including murder. Hard to imagine, right? The Times Square that we see today was like a skid row situation. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. But that's it. It it has changed a lot. Good job, man. That's my case. And now y'all can remember Richard Cottingham. The torso killer. The torso killer. You're welcome. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And what's really sad is how big the pool of choices was in wanting to find a serial killer who targeted sex workers. Wow, I know. There's so... So many cases. It was so hard. But when I read that, I was like, the torso killer. That sounds familiar. Uh huh. And then I read another article and I was like, who the fuck is Richard Cottingham? Oh. Ew, like I didn't, I didn't really is. know anything. So I was like, all right, let's do this one. No, I think it was a perfect choice. Thank you. Um, side note, this lime margarita one. I was just about to say. It's legit. It's legit, friends. It actually tastes like a margarita. It still says it's wine, but... It it has the flavor. I'm, mm-hmm. Ooh, it tastes like a margarita. It's good stuff. I like this. Mm-hmm. Sorry for my mouth noises. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. <laughs> Are you okay over there? I'm a okay, baby. Are <laughs> you looking down? Like I was okay. making sure I didn't drop a popsicle on my laptop. We're good. Okay. Okay. In 2002, the state of Florida executed the 10th woman to ever receive the death penalty in the United States since the 1976 reinstatement of capital punishment. The woman's name was Eileen Warnos. Fuck yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah. A former sex worker who had killed seven men she picked up while working the highways of Florida in 1989 and 1990. 
You want to see a photo of Miss Eileen? Yes, I do. I'm so excited. I love her story. It's fabulous. It's so good. So, so good. Okay. It's actually the first photo. It says mm-hmm. Eileen. thought this was a pretty good photo of her. She's actually smiling. I know. And not the bug-eyed crazy smile like in her interviews and stuff. Oh, my God. I know. It's so I was, scary. I was, <laughs> I was trying to find better pictures of her than mm-hmm. those. So. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. There she is. She was born as Eileen Carol Pittman on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Her mother, Diane Pratt, married one Leo Dale Pittman when she was 15 years old. He was a child molester. Who spent- Obviously, since she was 15. <laughs> uh, he spent most of his life in and out of prison before he died in jail in 1969. Good riddance, fucker. Yeah, bye-bye. When Pratt filed for divorce after less than two years of marriage, she was given custody of Eileen and her one-year older brother, Keith. All right. Yeah. In 1960, she abandoned them and left them in the care of their grandparents. (laughs) Just bye. Doses. Her grandfather molested her. Mm. And she was later raped by one of his friends, resulting in her becoming pregnant and having his son. This is so awful. Oh, there's so much. Um, She ended up giving him up for adoption. During her adolescent years, she had several sex partners, including her brother. Mm -mm -mm. She later grew up as a petty criminal and prostitute and was arrested for, among other things, drunk driving, disorderly conduct, firing a twenty-two gun from a vehicle, um, assault, armed robbery, and grand theft auto, and was also suspected of stealing a revolver with ammo. Well, you know, just to add a few things to the list. Mm-hmm. In 1976, she hitchhiked to Florida, where she lived for the rest of her life. Baby girl didn't even have a chance, really. Boy, she was... She she wears me out. Mm-hmm. She was busy. Yeah. Her life later became the subject of screenplays, stage productions, and multiple documentaries, as well as the basis for the 2004 movie... Monster. Yes, I love that movie. Fucking love it. I watched it last night. Mm-hmm. These takes on the story of Eileen Warnos revealed a woman who proved capable of murder again and again, while also revealing just how tragic her own life was. If you haven't watched it, I'm a fucking good. That is your homework. That's really important homework for this weekend. If you're listening to this, this podcast week, and you haven't watched that movie yet, there's a disconnect. Go do it. Yeah. Now you have a reason to. Um, It's actually pretty accurate. They did a good job. If a psychologist was challenged to invent a childhood that would probably produce a serial killer, Warnos' life would have been it. Eileen found sex work early in life, trading sexual favors at her elementary school for cigarettes and other treats at age 11. No, thank you, please. I don't know what those other treats were. I don't don't Mm -mm. really want to know. Leave it at treats. Of course, she didn't just pick up the habit on her own. Her father, who was a convicted sex offender, was out of the picture before she was born and ended up hanging himself in his prison cell when she was 13. So that's how he died in jail. Okay. But that's not traumatic at all, right? Nah. To add to it, her mother, a Finnish immigrant, had already abandoned her and her brother at that point. At the age of 20, Eileen tried to escape her life by hitchhiking to Florida and marrying a 69-year-old man... Yeah, 69, 20, six, yep. Um, That's just gross. Louis Fell. 
Fell was a successful businessman who had settled into semi-retirement as the president of a yacht club. All right. Get it. Get it, girl. Get it, Louie. <laughs> Eileen moved in with him and immediately started getting into trouble with local law enforcement. Nah. I have a photo of young Eileen. Not too shabby, what? actually. Why is it taking forever? Okay. I don't know. Tell your computer. She's actually pretty cute. I know. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, she had her she had her moment. She did. She was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Not so scary in that one. Mm-mm. She frequently left the home she shared with Fell to back that ass up in a local bar <laughs> where she often got into fights. <laughs> All right. <laughs> she also abused Fell, who later claimed that she beat him with his own cane. Oh, poor fella. Ah. Don't worry. Eventually, her elderly husband got a restraining order against her, forcing her to return to Michigan to file for an annulment after just nine weeks of marriage. Good job, Lewis. Yeah. (laughs) Thank goodness. Thank God he wasn't stupid. Around this time, her brother, with whom she had the incestuous relationship with, yep, suddenly died of esophageal cancer. She collected his $10,000 life insurance policy. Used some of the money to cover the fine for the DUI. Okay. And bought a luxury car that she then crashed while driving under the influence. That's about right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the money ran out, she returned to Florida and started getting arrested for theft again. Because why not? Mm -hmm. She briefly did time for an armed robbery in which she stole $35 and some cigarettes. That's worth going to jail for. Totally. (laughs) Picking up sex work again, she was arrested in 1986 when one of her customers told police that she had pulled a gun on him in the car and demanded money. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) You were picking up a sex worker, so... I mean, Mm. you took the risk, bruh. Yeah. In 1987, she moved in um, with a hotel maid named Tyra Moore... A woman who would become her lover and partner in crime. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of Tyra. Okay. That okay. says more. That does not look like Christina Ricci. Nope. Not at all. How? <laughs> no. Okay. Whoever cast that movie, I want to cast the movie about my life. Right. If she they gets did a Christina good. Ricci. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's totally different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. I was like, wait, she's, sp- wait, what? <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Moore was 24 years old when her relationship with 30-year-old Eileen Warnos began. According to biographer Sue Russell, the couple's faithful encounter in Daytona in 1986 dictated the rest of their lives. Okay. On a humid Florida evening in 1986, Tyra Moore faithfully met Eileen Warnos, an electric blonde at the Zodiac Bar in Daytona. Weeks earlier, Moore had left her conservative hometown of Caddis, Ohio, to fully embrace being a lesbian. Okay, good for you, girl. Uh-huh. Well, unbeknownst to her, she was falling for a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm fucked up, A.A. Ron. Just From then on, they became inseparable, she said. That was the anchor that Eileen had been looking for. Moore had no qualms about living in motel rooms with Warnos or crashing on the couches of friends for the four and a half years they were companions. Four and a half years. Okay. She was, she was all right with it. But Moore did have an issue with one thing. Which is? Her prostitution. 
Okay, well, yeah, that would present a problem. Yeah. Once I found out that she was prostituting, I did everything I could to help her stop doing that, said Moore. But then on November 30th, 1989, Warnos came home claiming to have shot and killed a client of hers who raped and beat her. Mm-mm. She told conflicting stories about her murders. Sometimes she claimed to have been the victim of rape or attempted rape with every single one of the men she killed. At other times, she admitted that she was trying to rob them. Depending on who she was talking to, her story changed. Of course. Moore believed her partner, particularly when the victim was identified as a convicted rapist. Mm-hmm. But then Warner started to come home with the belongings of strangers. Okay. Here's the victims. The first victim was shop owner Richard Mallory in 1989. A 51-year-old white man who picked up a sex worker along Interstate 75 in Florida to engage in sex for pay. Isn't That's what that, that is. what it is? Mm-hmm. A Volusia County deputy deputy discovered his body several miles away from his abandoned car. Mallory had been shot multiple times in the chest. Number two. All right. The nude body of David Spears, a 43-year-old construction worker, was found June 1st, 1990 in Citrus County. He had been shot six times in the torso. Yikes. A few days after Spears' body was discovered, the body of Charles Karskaden. 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 That's not cute. Uh, age 40 was discovered in Pasco County. The part-time rodeo worker had been shot nine times in the chest and stomach. What is a rodeo worker exactly? That could mean a lot of things. I know. That's what I'm sitting here thinking. Was he a clown? Did he open the gate for the bull riders? We need more information. I do need more information. <laughs> it matters. It's totally relevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be serious and couldn't do it the things that matter to me (laughs) it's okay i have my little quirks as well that's how everybody gets all of the good information Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right number four marion county law enforcement found the body of troy burris burris a 50 year old salesman on august 4th 1990 less than a week after he was reported missing Though the body was fairly decomposed, the medical examiner was able to determine that the cause of death was two gunshots to the torso. So why do some get nine and some two? That's interesting. Depends on how badly they pissed her off. I guess so. Yeah. A retired Air Force Major, Police Chief, and Florida Child Abuse Investigator, Dick Humphreys. He. he Dick. <laughs> Humphreys. <laughs> His mama did that. I know. All right. Well, I mean, it's really Miss Charles, but, you know. Dick. Dick. Okay. He was found dead in Marion County on September 12, 1990. The body was fully clothed and had suffered multiple gunshots to the head and torso. His car was later found in Sewanee County. Yep. There's more. Okay. On June 30th, 1990, 65-year-old Peter Sims disappeared from on a drive from Florida to Arkansas. 65-year-old Peter left Central Florida and headed for New Jersey in June of 1990. His car was found in Orange Springs on July 4th, 1990. Though his body has never been found, witnesses described two women near the car in Orange Springs. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, Her fingerprints were later recovered from the car, 
and from several of his personal effects that had turned up in local pawn shops. Are you stupid or something? Stupid. That tracks. Um, Eileen and Tyra went on to kill three more men, one being Walter Antonio. The partially disrobed body of Walter, age 62, was found November 19, 1990, in a remote part of Dixie County. He had been shot four times in the back and head. His car was found five days later in Brevard County. Mm. I do have a photo of all the victims. Okay. And they're all in order of what I said. Okay, so first thing I notice. Yes, ma'am. Is the rodeo worker. Yeah. Judging by that face, he was a clam. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sad he died, but he was definitely a clown. He was definitely a clown. And you Dick know, I, I have to agree. Dick Humphreys looks like somebody's pawpaw, and he had no business trying to put his little Peter somewhere. Girl, they got to get some, too. No, no. Look at him. He looks like a sweet little pawpaw. He had no business out there fetching sex workers. He's a man. He's a pawpaw. Pawpaws don't do that. They got knees. Uh-uh. Do what you do. <laughs> Just go home, Papa. Oh, I like the strawberry. Mm-hmm. Okay. After that, Eileen was picked up on a warrant after yet another fight in a biker bar in Volusia County, Florida. I have a picture of the bar where she was picked up. Okay. Okay. Nice little place. Well, that's a little hole in the wall. Moore had left her by this time, returning to Pennsylvania, where police apprehended her the day after Eileen was booked. It didn't take long for Moore to flip on Warnos. Okay, so it was true love. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Ride or die. Mm-hmm. Until they get caught. In the days immediately following her arrest... Moore was back in Florida, staying at a motel the police had rented for her. <laughs> there, she made calls to Eileen in an attempt to elicit a confession that could be used against her. In these calls, Tyra acted up a storm, pretending to be frightened that the police would pin all the blame on her for the murders. Mm-hmm. She'd beg Eileen to go over the story with her again, step by step, in order to get their story straight. After four days of repeated phone calls, Warnos confessed to several of the murders, but insisted over the phone that the killings Moore hadn't known about were all attempted rapes. Got her. Mm-hmm. Authorities now had what they needed to arrest Eileen for murder. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. She spent all of 1991 in jail, waiting for her trials to start, so no more killings for her. During that time, Moore was fully cooperating with prosecutors in exchange for full immunity. See, I, mm, I know. I, I don't like that. I don't either. I don't think that they should be allowed to do that. Maybe a little bit, but not full immunity. I don't think that. No, for a lesser just, sentence, yes. Maybe, yes. Full but immunity, not full immunity. No. Like, they still should be punished for what they freaking did. Exactly. Uh Okay, so she and Eileen often talked by phone, and Warnos knew in general terms that her lover had turned as a witness for the state. If anything, Warnos seemed to welcome it. Okay. I have a picture of Eileen in handcuffs. It's actually like a really famous photo. Oh, yeah. Super famous. We've seen this one before. All of you have seen this one before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cold. Yeah, I um, kind of got a brain freeze finishing mm-hmm. up that mango one. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, the verdict's in on the hump day treat. Strawberry wins. I'm kind of partial to mango, so I'm still going to say the mango. 
But they're all really good. Like oh, they're all good. Like I wouldn't care if they were sitting in an ice chest. Ice chest. I wouldn't say like a specific flavor. Yeah. I'd be like, just, just grab and go. Like, yeah. Popsicle me. <laughs> That's interesting phrasing. <laughs> well, we'll be popsicling. <laughs> so I had to say popsicle me. As rough as life had been for her outside of prison, she seemed to be having a harder time inside. She sat in confinement. She gradually became, came to believe that her food was being spat in or otherwise contaminated with bodily fluids. Um, it probably was. You're in prison. Yeah. She repeatedly went on hunger strikes as she refused to eat meals prepared while various individuals will, were present in the jail's kitchen. Who can blame her for that? Yeah. Starve yourself. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Her statements to the court and her own legal counsel became increasingly psychotic with many references to jail staff and other inmates she believed were plotting against her. Paranoia, paranoia, everybody's coming to get me. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. Like many disturbed defendants, she petitioned the court to fire her lawyer and let her represent herself. Okay, because that's always Always a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. The court actually agreed to this. They're like, why not? Let's let's watch this shit show. <laughs> let's see what happens. <laughs> let's just see what she does. <laughs> Which left her unprepared and unable to cope with the inevitable amount of paperwork that seven murder trials involve. Of course. Eileen went on to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory on January 16th, 1992, and was convicted two weeks later. No shit. The sentence was death. Mm-hmm. She pleaded no contest to three more murders for which the sentences were also death. So I'm, I'm going to say there's a pretty good chance that, you know, we're trending. Yeah. <laughs> In June, 1992, Warnes pled guilty to the murder of Charles Carskidden. Carskidden. I love Karskidin. that name so much. The radio clown. It is so much fun to say. <laughs> and was given yet another death sentence in November for the crime. The gears of death turned slowly in American capital cases. Ten years after first being sentenced to die, she was still on Florida's death row and degenerating fast. During her trial, she had been diagnosed as a psychopath with a borderline personality disorder. It took you that long to figure that shit out. This was ruled not strictly relevant to her crimes, but it did present the bedrock instability that let Ornos go a little bit batshit crazy in her prison cell. Yeah. In 2001, she directly petitioned the court to ask um, for her sentence to be hurried along. Okay. Mm-hmm. Citing abusive and inhumane living conditions, she also claims her body was being attacked by a sonic weapon of some kind. <laughs> Y'all. Have you seen those interviews? Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> dude! She's another serious. home, yeah. Another homework for y'all. Look up some interviews with Eileen Warnos. They're so good. Mm. Yeah, y- yeah. Um, I'm gonna say she has some um, definitely uh, borderline issues and mm-hmm. all that. Okay. Uh, her court-appointed lawyer tried to argue that she was irrational, but Warnos wouldn't go along with the defense. Not only did she confess again to the slayings, but she also sent this to the court as a document for the record. 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 <laughs> I am so sick of hearing this she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. 
Okay. On June 6, 2002, Eileen got her wish. She was put to death at 9.47 p.m. that day. During her last interview, she was quoted saying, <laughs> You ready for this shit? Mm-hmm. I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6, like the movie, Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. All right. Wow. Yep. 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 So after all that, I still kind of found myself asking, like, why did she really, like, psychotic break and all this kind of stuff, but why, why, mm-hmm. why then, what triggered her to do it? Yeah. Okay. So she told Jasmine Hurst in an interview that um, since she had now crossed the line, she knew her life was over, and as soon as she got caught, she would be sentenced to death. So she became a bounty hunter for rapists. They all did something that triggered her trauma, which she saw as not necessarily killing them as self-defense. Okay. So, yeah, that was her reason. I'm like, okay, well. So, like, maybe the first one did try to rape her and she snapped. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to say she was a little bit crazy before that, but. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Totes my goats. (laughs) Yeah. All right, who's in the douche box this week? Okay. <laughs> Let's cold read this shiz. Okay. May 25th. The first murder that serial killer Peter Curtin is known to have committed occurred on the 25th of May in 1913 during Whoa. the course of a burglary at a tavern in the town of Mulheim, Amreen. Sure, I said that okay. right. Okay. He encountered... Oh, no. Oh, no. He encountered a nine-year-old girl named Christine uh. Klein asleep in her bed. He strangled the child, then slashed her twice across the throat with a pocket knife. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Y'all plug your ears. Mm. With a pocket knife ejaculating as he heard the blood dripping oh, from her wounds oh. onto the floor by her bed. The end. Oh, Jesus. Well. Well, they got graphic on that one, didn't they? We got all the deets. Shit. Um, tr- trigger, trigger warning. <laughs> A little late for that, but you know. I am not laughing at the content. I am no. laughing at the awkwardness and uncomfortability is, of the moment. It is, it is a little awkward. I am sorry, friends. I cold read. Oh my God. I'm glad you sped up that part. Oh. Yeah, so we're not going to Google this one because no, I don't No, we're not want, doing that for y'all. I don't, I don't care what he see. looks like. I don't want to know. Peter Curtin. Curtin. But it's like, um, he's obviously not American. I don't know where he's from. Um, I'm going to assume it is like Eastern European. Yeah. Um, that's what I was guessing too. But it's K U with the little dots. I don't know what that's called. R T E N. Okay. Curtin. So, um, that just happened. Yeah. Please come back. Please come back. It was an accident. (laughs) And that was our episode on sex workers. Yeah. And um, we're going to go now. Yeah. We're going to go. Rate and review us on iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. And um, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. um, Bye. Bye.
Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout out to Stephen Goetzky for editing, Craig Weaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagens for art. We'll talk at you next week.